All right. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. I want to welcome everybody to the Bellingham campus. Welcome those who are joining us at the Ferndale campus. And a huge welcome to those who are joining us online. We're just so glad that you're here. We have a lot to cover in a short amount of time. Two announcements. There's an ownership class Sunday afternoon. If you want to come, show up. We'll buy you lunch. Last week, we're try- we started a project on finishing the Tumayini Children's Home. We raised about $11,000 last week. We had about $39,000 left to go. I'll leave that into your good care and consideration. There is a blue envelope for, your, or for that purpose in your program. Here we go. I was talking to a friend this past week about our subject matter. And after he finished laughing at what it was, trying to picture me, trying to tackle this topic, as he hung up the phone, he said, hey, Grant, give him hell this weekend. And I laughed as I said goodbye, and then I started thinking. Some of the people in this room have or feel like they've lived through hell in the last week. And you're struggling as you walk into our doors And the last thing you want to hear today is hell. I need to say this up front. I want to give you hope this weekend, but before we can have hope, we're going to have to walk through a little bit of hell in order to get there. I hope you'll hang with me. I hope you will focus and put aside every distraction you can for about the next 27 minutes. Because if you get off at any point during this message, you're going to walk out of here not knowing the God that we love at Christ the King. So I need you to stick with me. I grew up in a church tradition where we went to church a lot. Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night Bible study. I mean, it was just what we did. Sunday nights were different, especially Sunday nights in the summer. Sunday nights in the summer in Manitoba, it was hot and it was humid. And for some reason as a kid, I just remember, because it was so hot and so humid, the pastor seemed to really enjoy preaching about hell. He would sweat, and then he would loosen his tie, and he would talk about the burning, torturous, tea-gnashing of hell. Just so we're clear, I believe in a literal hell because that's what my Bible says. Those Sunday nights, though, if it was a good service, you got to smell the fire of hell. If it was a really good service, you felt the fire of hell. If it was a really, really, really good service, the pastor would dangle you over the edge of hell and you'd get saved again just to make sure because you didn't want to mess with it. During those services, I was confronted with some scriptures that left me with a very distorted view of God. I didn't like the verses because they scared me. I didn't like the verses because the preacher always seemed to say them while he was sweating and spitting at me. And it kind of freaked me out. You know, I, I, I got a little bit, a li- a little bit worried. And, and, and I was a little worried about sharing some of the scriptures with you. Because you take them out of context, they can be scary. Let's look at some troubling scriptures that are straight out of the Bible. Psalm 5.4 says, The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. Isaiah 59, 2, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so he will not hear you. Judges 1, 14, in his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to the raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. 
Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge who expresses his wrath every day. Acts 5, verses 1 through 11, tell a story of Ananias and Sapphira. That story will scare you. Ananias and Sapphira are a married couple. They sell some land and give the profits to the church. The problem is they take a cut for themselves and they lie about it and they both end up dead. Not just fainted, dead. The last line of that story freaks me out. Scripture says, it says a great fear settled over the whole church. Are you kidding me? Just, I'm not even going to touch on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where God fries a couple of cities. I mean, it's just scary. I would read these accounts in Scripture, and then I will tell you, listed in your outline, is Grant's logical conclusion. My logical conclusion is that God is really, really angry. You can't get around it. Over 600 times in Scripture, God's described as angry or full of wrath. And I only knew one way to interpret this. God's angry. God's full of wrath. And I was petrified. I was really glad because the Bible also said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If that's true, I was really wise as a kid. Because I was scared to death. I can remember being so freaked out that I'd go to bed at night. Jesus loves me, this I know. Please let this little kid's song be so. I mean, I was just freaked out. Now, I want you to understand something. I'd love to candy coat this for you and say, that's not what it means. But the verses mean what they say. There's a part of God that's very, very angry. Now, don't freak out because your picture of anger and God's picture of anger are very, very different. Now, remember, you said you'd hang with me to hope. Some of you are waffling already. Just hang in, okay? God's picture of anger is different than ours. I got angry last week. I mean, I lost it because my computer wouldn't work. I'm in Linden by myself. I can't get it fixed, so I tried to fix it this way, you know? Anybody ever tried to fix your computer that way? I mean, I, I'm in a coffee shop. I'm writing. In a matter of seconds, I go from writing about Jesus to being red-faced, breathing hard, vein popping out on the side of my head. I mean, I'm thinking very bad things about the people from Dell. I'm wishing they were in a place that rhymed with the name of their company. You picked that up. I mean, I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I think I scared the people around me because all of a sudden they're all staring at me, right? You know, when we think anger, we think irrational. We think punishing. We think out-of-control anger where somebody's going to get hurt. I mean, don't pretend you haven't been there. All of a sudden, everybody got all self-righteous on me, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you quickly about God's wrath. This is the truth about God's wrath. We need to know this. God's anger is not irrational, okay? That's important. Psalm 711, I read that verse, I read that verse to you earlier. It says, God is a righteous judge who expresses his wrath every day. We probably got stuck, stuck on the last part of the verse, right? Every single day, we missed the first part. It says, God's a righteous judge. God's not out of control. His anger is completely under control. And it's focused in a very specific direction. It's not irrational. Secondly, God's anger is slow. Listen to Exodus 34. It says, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. I mean, there's only one way to interpret that verse. God's got a long fuse. 
Aren't you glad? Just look back on your life for a few minutes. Aren't you glad? And thirdly, he says God's anger is sometimes held back. I found this little verse. I've never seen it before. Psalm 78, 38 says this, yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities, did not destroy them. Time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. God's not out of control angry, but Scripture tells us he's angry. And I think we've got to ask the question, why is God angry? Let me tell you why. God is angry because of the devastation that sin is causing. He's angry because to make it worse, instead of walking away from the devastation of sin, we keep walking back to it over and over and over again. We get caught in these cycles. We don't break loose. We know that God offers an opportunity to be set free, but we just keep going back to it. And it makes God angry. I mean, let's just face something. I think we better talk about it today. I'll put it this way. We love talking about the sin we see in somebody else's life. We don't like it when somebody talks about the sin that's in our own, right? We like it when God's angry at everybody else in the room. But it's, when it's directed towards us, because we just keep choosing to cheapen His grace, we like it when it's everybody else's problem, but not when it's ours. Let me give you the bottom line so we understand. God is holy. He's holy. And God's anger burns against sin. And we are sinful people. So that's a problem. That's a huge problem. And we need help. We need help. Let me say it again. We struggle with the idea that God is angry. Except when it comes to other people. I mean, we, we, we love it when we talk about God's love, and we did that last weekend. But the anger part, we either like to just explain it away, or we get stuck in it, and we find ourselves buying the lie that I grew up in. I believed growing up God was either sad or mad 100% of the time. He was just sad because I was a complete and perpetual disappointment, or he was angry because I just couldn't get it right. And neither one could be further from the truth. I had a picture that God was sitting in heaven just waiting for me to mess up. Just waiting for it so that he could jump in and go, there you are, you're a worm just like I thought you were. That's what I thought. You know, I have a question. If God is angry, is it possible that his anger is still based in love? Let me give you an idea. My kids are big now, but at one time they were small. Let's say one day, let's make my daughter McKenna about five years old. Let's say one day she's playing in our yard, and, and she starts heading towards the street. So I call to her, and I say, hey, McKenna, come back. Come back. The street's not safe, sweetheart. And she keeps going. So I call to her again, and I say, hey, McKenna, come back. And she keeps going. So I start moving towards her. I'm not running. I'm just kind of walking fairly quickly. And I'm just like, McKenna, you need to come back right now. You're heading towards danger. Daddy wants you to come back right now. And in that instant, out of the corner of my eye, I see a huge truck barreling down the street towards my daughter. So I start running. And I start screaming, McKenna, stop, come back. And she just keeps right on going have no idea why, but she's just heading for the street, and I can see the truck coming, and so I yell at the top of my lungs, McKenna, stop! And she keeps going. 
So I run as fast and as hard as I possibly can. And at the very last second, I reach for her. And the only thing I can grab a hold of is the cute little ponytail sticking out of the back of her head. And I grab it and I pull it as hard as I can because the truck is right there. And I pull her so hard, her little feet leave the ground and she actually hits the concrete. Back of her head first. And then I pull her into my arms. There are some people that would say, as I'm holding my bleeding child, that what I did was not very loving. Wasn't it? Wasn't it the most loving thing I could do to reach and do whatever I could to pull her back to safety, even throw myself in front of the truck? Isn't that love? And even as I'm holding her, I may be unbelievably angry at her actions, but my actions were based in one place and came from one source. I love that little girl. We have a hard time understanding this, but those of you who are married, you understand this better than anybody. You've probably said this at some point during your marriage. If you say you didn't, I think you're lying. I think we've all said at one point, you know what, I love you, but right now, I'm really, really angry at you. You can do both, can't you? God can be angry and loving at the same time. In fact, I'm going to tell you something. The reason God's angry is because He loves you. And He doesn't want you to destroy your life with sin. We talked a lot about anger. Fairly intense. Let's switch gears. Let's switch gears to some comforting scriptures. Because the Bible has more to say than just about God's anger, even though it's in there and you can't explain it away. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. 1 John 2, 2. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Propitiation is a very big word. I can almost guarantee that there is no one in this room, unless you were talking about what we were going to talk about this weekend at Christ the King, who's used this word in a sentence in the past month or so. I mean, it's not like you just walk out and go to Costco and throw out the word propitiation into the middle of the food aisle, right? It just doesn't come up in normal conversation. Some translations of the Bible don't even use it. They're all very accurate to the original text, but they've tried to use other words because we don't use the word propitiation. In fact, if you use an NIV, New International Version, which we use as, the, as our common Bible here at Christ the King, if you went looking for the word propitiation this week, you were really disappointed, weren't you? Because it's not in there. Those translators used different words. They may have used words like substitution or atoning sacrifice. But we're going to stick with the word propitiation because it's unbelievably powerful. And now we're starting to head towards hope. The word to propitiate means this. It means to appease, to pacify, to avert the anger of another. It's an unbelievably powerful word where, whereby someone's been offended. And because of a propitiation, 
someone else has stepped into the middle of that, in front of that offended party to appease them, to pacify them. And the most beautiful part of the, the end of propitiation, which we're going to get to in just a second, is that when that offended person is reconciled to the offendee, they don't get to the end of it and just go, fine, and walk away. Propitiation means the anger is dealt with, and then the offended and the offendee come together, and what was anger is replaced with favor. Let me explain what it means. The spiritual idea of propitiation is that God's anger has to be satisfied. That God is angry at sin. In the Old Testament, a system of animal sacrifice was instituted as a way of appeasing God's wrath. And this is where this gets very, very personal for us. I've tried to make all of these definitions personal so that they matter to each one of us. We're defining propitiation to, or today as this. Propitiation is this. It's the work of Jesus, our Savior. To avert the wrath of God by dying on the cross as a substitute for sinners. That's what propitiation is for our workable definition. It means this. Jesus took the wrath of a perfect and holy God so we didn't have to. Jesus took what I deserved and paid the penalty once and for all so that I don't have to. Jesus paid the debt of sin I couldn't pay so that God's wrath could be exchanged for God's favor. I told you the truth about God's anger. Let me help you understand the love that's on the other side of that anger but goes along perfectly with it. This is the truth of God's love. 1 Timothy 2 says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The testimony given in its proper time. He gave himself as a ransom. He propitiated because he wanted to. He propitiated because he loves you. Are we going to get that point? Because he loves us. Romans 5, 8 and 9 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since now we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Do you know who the him is in that verse? That would be Jesus. And we bragged about him last weekend as the author and the perfecter of our faith and our salvation. Let me try to roll the idea of propitiation up into one tiny little sentence. God saved us from himself, by himself, and for himself. That should take you about 30 or 40 years to digest. I can't even wrap the beginning part of my brain around it, but my Bible tells me it's true. He saved us from himself, by himself, and for himself. I mean, think about this. I stole this idea from Daryl Johnson up at Regent College. He wrote a wonderful book about this topic. And he says, back in school, you probably learned about all different kinds of mythology. And if you were paying attention, one of the things you learned very quickly about mythology is that the gods, little g, you clear? Little g gods, they were angry 
They were always angry. Always, constantly, and perpetually angry. And these angry gods wanted people to make them happy. And the only way they could make the god, little g, happy was to sacrifice one of their sons or their daughters. The tragic part of a lot of mythology is entire cultures and civilizations followed those myths and killed their own kids to try and make the little g god happy. This is the amazing thing about the God that we named our church after. God demands, because he is holy, that his righteous anger be satisfied. But instead of demanding your child, he offers you his. Awesome. I've had a whole week to try and wrap myself around that. The first time it kind of came out of my fingers, it was like, no way. My friends, at the cross, Jesus took on himself the sins of the whole world, mine and yours. God's holy. He can't look at sin. So he had to turn his back on his own son. And in that moment, Jesus took the sin and he expiated it. Another big word. We're not even going to have a chance to touch on it, but it means he removed it. As a propitiation, doing that work, he removed it, and suddenly we were made favorable to God and had the opportunity to be reconciled to God. Propitiation is a really, really, really good word now because it means we've got hope. John Stott, famous preacher, put it this way. He says, God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us. That's incredibly good news. I mean, when you think about it, the cross was a tragically beautiful place. It was a place where, where, where the purity of heaven met the sin of earth. And Jesus, hanging in between heaven and earth, took on himself the full wrath of purity and holiness so that he could reach to us and say, I'd like, you to, I'd like to introduce you to somebody. And because of what I've done, He's always going to be angry at sin because he doesn't want it to hurt you. But just so we're absolutely clear, he loves you. This is my dad, and he's different than most of your dads. I know some of you had really, really good dads at Christ the King, but I know some of you grew up with a different picture. And it hurts when you hear the word father. Let me just tell you something. God our Father in heaven is not irrational. He's not flipping out. He doesn't want to try and hurt you. He loves you. Now, will he discipline those that he loves? Oh, yes, he will. You know why? Because he's a great parent. That's why. Even that's because he loves you. At the cross, God's anger and God's love met. The cross was the place where sin and perfect love came into direct conflict. At the cross, Jesus took our debt set us free. I'm going to ask Mike if he'll come. And Mike's going to grab his guitar and, and he's going to sing over you about this beautiful place where love and anger met, where justice and mercy ran directly into each other. The place 
the beautiful place where we were set free. Mike Woodson.
experience it to understand it. A couple of years ago, I ran a marathon with my friend Bob, 13 miles outside of Las Vegas. We ran up out of a little dip, and a 20-mile-an-hour headwind kicked me right in the chest. And I thought, I'm not going to make it. Bob was an experienced marathoner, so he ran about two steps in front of me, cut right in front, and said, you stayed right behind me. He took the wind right in his chest for 13 miles. Gave up his time, gave up his accomplishment so I could stagger across the finish line. He took it. 15 years ago in the darkest moment of my life, Laurel and I had left another ministry and there were accusations and gossip swirling around our lives in every single direction. And I couldn't take it. So I'd leave. And Laurel stayed at home. Answering the phone. Defending her husband. I remember coming home once. Standing around the corner. And I heard her on the phone. Saying actually no. You can't talk to him right now. And when you do talk to him. You better remember something. I'm his wife. And she and he is my husband. Two thousand years ago, he took it. All of heaven's fury in its purest form, and he stood in front of it, and he took it. And when he said it was finished, More than just having that gift, because of the propitiation of Jesus, I now have God's favor. He likes me. I don't need to keep working on it because it's not by works. He likes me, not because of anything I did, but because of what his son did as my substitute as my great propitiator, as the one who has appeased the wrath of God once and for all so that the God that I've offended with my sin could look on me with favor and love and joy. You know, when you get to the end of propitiation, you don't get to leave going, Oh, I'm such a worm. In reality, we all make decisions that take us in the wormish direction. And God keeps calling and wooing us back because he's paid that price. If anything tonight... <laughs> This is right up there with salvation. I mean, to think 
it was coming at me with everything, and it was deadly. And he stepped in front of it, and he took it. Knowing that he took it, should have been mine, he made it his. This is where it just gets awesome. There's only one response. I mean, I'm working through this all week long. I'm in my office, and I get to the end of the message, and I'm like, (laughs) are you kidding me? I was in the crosshairs, and he jumped in front. And the enemy mistakenly thought that when he jumped in front, that he was going to be dead. Three days later, not dead. Welcome back to Easter, Christ the King. It's an everyday occurrence. Isn't that an amazing, beautiful thing? Every day is Easter. Every day continues to grow because of the work that Jesus did and how he finished it on the cross. We, above all people, are unbelievably blessed because of this gift that he's done in our lives. Oh my goodness. Do we understand just how beautiful it is? It's a big word, and it means everything to us because he did the work. For you and for me. Would you join me in praying as we give him praise for that? Let's pray. God, thank you for this. Thank you so much for the gift. Jesus, thank you for stepping in front. God, thank you that as a loving parent, your anger does burn. God, thank you for loving us. God, thank you that you are angry because you love us. God, may that change the way we live this week. God, we welcome your hand of conviction, thanking you that it's not condemnation anymore. We welcome your conviction because, God, we want to live differently. We want to be people of holiness and purity. But, God, it's all been made possible (laughs) because of this beautiful, beautiful gift and work that Jesus accomplished on the cross in that beautiful place. So God, may we, be, may we be driven towards holiness this week. May we celebrate with wild abandon because of the freedom that you've given to us. God, thank you for a big word with a deep meaning. And thank you that the focal point is the salvation of our souls. We love you and give you praise in Jesus' good name. And all of God's people at Bellingham and Ferndale agreed together and said, Amen. Amen. And amen. We're going to bring this service to conclusion.